Jonah is a book that's very dear to my heart. It's a book I've had the opportunity of teaching through before, and I've never left unchanged. And I pray that as we go through this book together over the next three weeks, you also will be encouraged and convicted. Among the prophets, Jonah is a unique one. While other books of prophecy in the Old Testament are filled with visions and prophetic warnings and pronouncements of judgment, Jonah is primarily narrative in form. It's also probably, most likely, autobiographical, meaning that Jonah would have written this book after his experience. Like other prophets, Jonah was commanded to speak against the evil that was taking place. And specifically, he was told to go and speak against the evil taking place in a Gentile land. But what was very unique about Jonah is that he is the only prophet in the Old Testament told to actually physically go to the land and speak against it. Nahum had a similar ministry of condemning Nineveh, but he was able to do so within the confines and the comfort of Israel. Probably most significantly, and likely the reason you are familiar with the book of Jonah, other than the Sunday school picture of him being swallowed by a fish, is that Jonah is the only prophet that we know who directly defied the commandment of God. Now we could think of Moses who was told to speak to the stone and instead struck it. But Jonah, he, he didn't only do not exactly what God said, he did exactly what God did, said not to do. God said, go east. He went, went west. He fled from the presence of the Lord. He attempted to directly defy the will of God. And as we'll see as we look at this study, it had very selfish and very specific purposes when he did this. But something we can't miss as we go through the book of Jonah is this idea that God gets the glory even in disobedience. And especially in this chapter, we see that God gets the glory even in Jonah's sin. He gets the glory in Jonah's disobedience. And as we'll find as we go through this book, there is a profound statement that takes place in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Just flip there and look with me. Jonah says in verse 9, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Now notice these words. Salvation is from the Lord. This most simple, short sentence encapsulates the entire focus of salvation history. This singular verse tells us everything we need to know about the heart of God toward the lost. His patience with the elect, His anger toward the reprobate, and His salvation, which He brings to all who call on His name. We must never forget, and this is so important, we must never forget that salvation is God's idea. It's not something man could even think of. He could never imagine it. He could never merit it. If it was left up to men, And the self-styled religions that we see throughout the world, this is always the case. Men look to earn salvation through meritorious work, through aesthetic worship, through some action that they do, something that they bring. And the truth is that biblical Christianity teaches us the absolute opposite. Salvation is of the Lord 
It is for God, and men get nothing that they can say, look what I did. They get none of the glory, but God gets all of the glory. And for this reason, to demonstrate God's just nature and loving nature, He made Jesus Christ our Savior who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. When Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days there in the darkest depths of Sheol, literally at the precipice of hell nearing death, he cried out these words, Salvation is of the Lord. And its utterance was not something that he could have conjured. It was not something he could comprehend. It was something that was given to him by the Spirit of God. And it was for him salvation and for you and me and all who call on the name of Jesus Christ. It is the singular means of salvation. Salvation is of God. And this morning as we look at this passage, recognize that. Every action that Jonah does in his own strength is counteracted by the strength and the power of God. And in each act of disobedience, God brings about a sound and strong action of His will and produces an undeniable salvation for Him, for the sailors in the ship, as we'll see in Nineveh. And for you, if you're hearing this morning, that salvation is available. Look with me at Jonah starting in chapter 1, and we're just going to look at the first 16 verses and leave verse 17 for next week. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa. He found a ship which was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said to him, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up! Call on your God! Perhaps your God will be concerned about us, so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Now come, let us cast lots, so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And so they said to him, What should we do to you, that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. 
And he said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming ever stormier against them. And then they called on the name of the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped. It's raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Let's pray. Father, this text is rich. There's much here for us to see. But the, the truth is, you know exactly the lessons we need to learn from this passage. The, the truth of the matter is that if anyone is here this morning and they are outside of Christ, they are like these sailors who are going through the normal at aspects of life and thinking that things are just okay. And there are going to be stormy gales that come into their lives and there's going to be great turmoil that happens and they will need to know who to look to. I pray from hearing this sermon that they would be encouraged and cautioned, but encouraged to look to you as our Savior. The other reality is that many of us in this room are much like Jonah. We are fleeing from your will. We in some small ways, some in significant ways, some in hidden ways, we are walking in defiance to your will and we know it. Lord, I pray that you would prick our hearts and draw us back to you so that we would not have to learn through a calamity like Jonah had to. Amen. The book of Jonah displays to us two central themes of the glory of God. First is compassion for the lost, as we will have seen so far with these sailors, but also his intense patience with the redeemed, as we are seeing with Jonah and will see in the weeks to come. In this first chapter, though, the thing that is a theme that confronts us is there's this just utter contempt of Jonah for the lost, and yet this overwhelming compassion that God has for the lost and even for Jonah. So for us this morning, we're going to see three things that kind of help hold this sermon together in our minds to give us something as a takeaway. And that will be our outline this morning. We see first the disobedience of Jonah in verses 1 to 3. Secondly, we will notice the discipline of God. And thirdly, we will see the diligence of these sailors. Notice the first verse. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. When I've preached this sermon before, I've spent uh, an entire hour just giving the background information of these first three verses. I'm going to try to do it in just a few minutes. Trust me when I say that there's so much information to know, and I'd love to share it with you if you want to know more. But this is the key things we need to understand. Jonah was a prophet in Gath-Hefer who preached to northern Israel, which as we know is a wicked uh, uh, kingdom. There was a division of the kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern uh, kingdom of Israel. And in the history of the northern kingdom, there was never, ever, 
a single righteous king. Every single act that they did, beginning with Jeroboam the first, was to go and to worship other gods made out of gold, gold in the shape of calves and to give the glory that belonged to Yahweh to them. So Jeroboam the second, being another wicked king, was the king during the time that Jonah was preaching in northern Israel. And while we would expect that Jonah would have a ministry like many of the other prophets of condemnation, instead we find that in 2 Kings 14, in verse 25, Jonah is named and his ministry is given a little bit of a specific uh, description. In 2 Kings 14, verse 25, we see that Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah according to the word of Yahweh, of the God of Israel, which was spoken by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. It's the exact same Jonah that we're seeing in this story. So Jonah was a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preacher, except that he was a true prophet of God. Think about this. Just before the destruction of northern Israel, just before they would be carried off into captivity, just before they would be utterly destroyed and never seemingly return to that land, God sent Jonah to give them one more blessing And the land prospered. The land was expanded. It reached, uh, in northern Israel, uh, expanded its borders to touch the areas it was supposed to have had to begin with when God gave them the land. So we see that Jonah was an accurate prophet. He spoke truthfully, and what he said came to pass. And we would imagine that Jonah enjoyed this ministry, unlike some of his companions. He was not sawn in half. He was not ridiculed and hated. He was not told, Son of man, go and uh, speak to this people who are stiff-necked and will not hear you. Instead, he went to them and he said, Listen, God wants to bless us. And he did. And everyone loved him for it. But notice Jonah's response to the second call he receives when he's told to go to Nineveh. In verse 3, the first part, it says, Jonah, after being told to go to Nineveh, instead rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. It's just unthinkable. It's unimaginable. When we think of prophets, what do we think about? I think about Ezekiel. I think of a guy who grew his beard out, shaved half of it off, and went around the city chasing it with a sword. I think of a man who laid on his side for over 300 days and then was told to lay on the other side for another 100. I think of a guy who was told to cook over human dung and pled with the Lord, and God said, okay, you can do it over camel dung. That's radical obedience. Jonah, he's told, I want you to go and speak against the evil of Nineveh. And he's like, no way. (laughs) I'm not going. He goes the opposite direction. And the thing is, he goes as far west as was humanly possible, as was known by cartographers of this era, 1,500 miles to the west to Tarshish, which is most likely modern-day Spain. There was a small diaspora of uh, Jews who had ended up there. Perhaps he thought he would be able to get in that area, still have some sort of profitable ministry as a prophet. Regardless, he was fleeing from the presence of God. You know, what's silly is the thought that he could even flee from the presence of God. What was Jonah thinking? 
as we will find out when we look later, Jonah was very familiar with the scripture. He would spend many hours memorizing it and preaching it to himself. And so for him, Psalm 139 would have been very familiar. It's one that's familiar to all of us, I believe. But in verses 7 to 8, the, the psalmist says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I were to ascend to heaven, you were there. If I were to make my bed in Sheol, you were there. When Jonah is repenting and praying to God in Psalm 2, he actually says these words. So he knew this, but he was making derelict of his duty to God, fleeing from the presence of God. And so we have to ask this question. It wasn't a theological issue, was it? It was an obedience issue. Same thing with all of us. Well, here's some good reasons to consider why Jonah might have fled from the presence of the Lord, why he may have fled from Assyria. Just some things to consider. One that, that, that is very much uh, should be on your mind is that the Assyrians were a terrifying people. They were known to uh, come and surround the areas in which they were going to conquer with vast armies. They would flay the skin of their enemies outside of the camp and put them on the walls. They would take the the heads and stack them into tall uh, um, stacks. They would uh, take catapults and throw the, uh, the decapitated bodies into the walls and tell the people, your God has abandoned you. Come out to us or you will have the same treatment. It's a terrifying terrifying people. It'd be like me saying to you, do you want to be a missionary? Perfect. Today I want you to go buy a ticket, go to Iraq, and go preach against ISIS. You would be afraid that you wouldn't last, right? So, was it because Jonah was afraid? Well, that's possible, but no, that's not, that's not why. Was it because Jonah, like uh, many other Jews, had a, 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 fault, a, a failure to understand that the gospel was not only for Israel, but for those outside of Israel? Was it that he hated the Assyrians because in his day and the time that he lived, the Assyrians were known to come in to ransack the edges of the village and perhaps had even come into his village and done great damage in Nazareth? Those are good reasons, but they're not the reason, are they? Look at Jonah chapter 4. He tells us exactly why he refused to go. In chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was this not the reason? Excuse me, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, God, a God slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Did you get that? Why did Jonah refuse to go to Tarshish? Because he wanted them to suffer. He wanted them to be damned. He wanted them to go to hell. He hated them. His heart was filled with contempt toward them. And in attempting to forestall and to thwart the will of God, he thought, if I don't go, perhaps God will send someone else and I won't lose my reputation as being a beloved prophet. He thought if he didn't go to Assyria, maybe God would actually go ahead and destroy Assyria because he understood, because the prophets at this era were saying that God was going to raise up Assyria to come and chastise northern Israel. Perhaps he thought he could forestall or halt God's action by him instead destroying Nineveh before Nineveh could destroy Israel. 
whatever the reason was, we can't know for certain. Jonah did not want them to repent. Look back at verse 3 in chapter 1, the second part. So he went down to Joppa. He found a ship which was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down. He got into the ship with them and went to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And now I want you to think about this. Jonah paid the fare and he didn't experience any kind of opposition from God. He had all the money he needed in his pocket. Uh, He was disobeying God. He went and looked for an open door. He found it. He was not uh, finding anything to stop him along the way. And what we see here is that we need to be careful about looking to mystical means outside of the Word of God, means that or something within our own psyche or emotionalism or sense of entitlement or our will outside of God's will. We need to be careful when we are looking to do things that are in uh, direct defiance of God's Word. When we do that, we're acting like Jonah. We are disobeying God. We are fleeing from His presence. And God will at times allow us to do exactly what we want. He'll do something that is terrible and terrifying. He'll give you what you want. He'll allow you to experience the sin that you so covet. You know, when Gideon laid out that fleece, it was not a sign of belief, but of disbelief. It was not faith. It was a man who questioned God. It was not a man who believed God. So when you as a Christian say, well, I'm laying out my fleece, I'm looking for my open door, I would question you. Is there something in the Scripture that has given you direction that you're disobeying? There are certainly things that we have in our own lives that we have freedom in and we can seek God's guidance in, but we should not do so in defiance of God's Word. And that's what Jonah was doing here. And so we see that although Jonah was not experiencing any pushback, the author gives us very clear indicators that God was setting him up, that God was opposed to Jonah. Notice the repetitious use of the word down throughout the first chapter and even in chapter 2. Jonah went down to Joppa in verse 3. He went down into the ship in verse 3. He went down to sleep in verse 5. He went down into the sea, down into the fish, down into the belly of the fish, down into Sheol. It's a downward progression. Anytime you're reading the Scripture and you see words repeated, you need to take note. They don't have bold, they don't have italics, but they do have repetition to say, look, blinking lights, God is opposed to Jonah, and Jonah is going down, down, down from the presence of the Lord. Now look in verses 4-7 to and notice the discipline of the Lord. This perfectly handcrafted, specifically tailor-made trial and affliction that God has created for Jonah for his good for God's pleasure. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. There was a great storm on the sea, and the ship was about to break up. Who commands the elements? God does. And the Scripture is so clear about that. And so here, there's this terrible wind and great uh, breaking sea uh, taking over the ship so that it's about to break up. And in fact, the funny thing is we notice Jonah, he's not thinking. 
he's thinking about himself, but he's not thinking. But you know, in the Greek, or excuse me, the, the Hebrew, uh, here where it says the ship was about to break up, it literally is implying that the ship was thinking, hey, I'm about to break up. The ship is thinking, but Jonah's not. But here's an important lesson we need to learn, and I think this is so key to us in our Christian walk. We, we are so often just thinking of ourselves, and we don't think about the consequences of the choices that we make. And in this, this little letter, what we notice is that your sin is not your sin. If I were to go out to a placid lake and take a rock and throw it, what's going to happen? There's going to be a drop of the stone and there's going to be a ripple effect that goes through the water. Your sins private, your sins public, affect everyone around you. Your obedience affects those around you, but so does your disobedience. And for Jonah, he's in this sea. And think about the great cost that is happening when these sailors have to throw everything they have in the ship overboard. But don't just think about those sailors. There are people who lived on the side of the ocean who are experiencing this northeaster. There are other ships on the ocean that day who are experiencing this great calamity. And it was all because of this one man. You know, this is merciful though, isn't it? Because when Jonah is disciplined, it shows us that he's a child of God. I encourage you to turn over with me to Psalm 94. And I want to remind you that Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines those whom He loves, but I want to use this, the passages of Scripture that Jonah was familiar with. Uh, in Hebrews 12, the, the author there is actually quoting Job, and I'm just going to read a few of these and then we'll look at a passage together. But he uh, is quoting Job 5, 17-18, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves! So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he inflicts pain and he gives relief. He wounds and he uh, also heals. In Proverbs three eleven to 12, one that we're all familiar with says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. These are all lessons that are present in Hebrews 12, but these are the scriptures that Jonah knew that were taught to him as a child. Now look at Psalm 94, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. For judgment will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against those who do wickedness? God is afflicting Jonah because he's not abandoned Jonah. Beloved, if we experience discipline, you need to thank God because that means you're a son, you're a daughter, you're a child of God. Not only is it terrifying to be given everything that you want so that sin abounds and you experience its full torment, but what's even more fearful and dreadful is to be like one that Romans 1 describes who is given over to depravity and nothing ever stops them. That is the greatest expression of the wrath of God from heaven, to be given everything that you want so that sin increases and increases in your life and nothing stops you. 
Now notice the second call of Jonah in verse 6. We saw already that God spoke to Jonah saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. But now in chapter 6, the captain, he is just overwhelmed with fear and in frustration he notices Jonah is laying down asleep. And he comes up to him and he says, Get up! He calls out to him in the same word here. Get up is the word that's used to disc- for his call. Arise and go to Nineveh. This is his second call. And now the captain is saying to him, Get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will have concern about us that we will not perish. You know, while Jonah was sleeping, not only was he only thinking of himself, but he was not thinking of these men at all. They, they've been calling out to every god they can think of, and they've, they've exhausted the names. You've got to remember that in this, this area, these men, they are worshipping during an era of polytheism, and so there would be a god of the ocean, there would be a god of the dry land, and there would be even a god of the mountain, a god of the sun, a god of the sky, whatever it may be. There's a god for pretty much every day of the week, for uh, the trees, for the harvest, for having children. And so these men are on the ocean... They have relieved the, the ship of all the cargo, which was their means of advancement financially. And they are calling out to everything that they can think of. They're praying to the, the God that they know of. They're praying to the God that their friend, that maybe he was Phoenician and they, and, and they, they were uh, just of a totally different caste they, or a different uh, nation. They, they were recalling to name every God that they could think of. And then they're even calling out on the unknown God. And now they come up to Jonah and they say, do you know any other gods? Because clearly we've exercised every God that we can think of and nothing is happening. Nothing is changing. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us and we will not perish. You notice the other thing is that this disobedience of Jonah has done what? Silenced his witness. When you're walking in disobedience to God, your witness is silenced. It's sullied. It's, you won't even speak of Christ. And so Jonah, they bring him along and maybe he prayed, but we know that if it was praying, it was lip service, no repentance, because nothing changed. And in verse 7, the men, not knowing what else to do, recognize this, Jonah hasn't said, it's my fault. Do you think he had a guilty conscience? I think he did. One, one reason he may have been in deep sleep was because of the uh, depression that he was going through as he ran from God. That's something that's often accompanied uh, or familiar to see accompanying uh, depression is just great exhaustion. Sleep, sleep, sleep. So each man now in verse 7 said to each other now, come let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. And so they cast the lot and it fell on Jonah. You know, the sailors, they'd done everything they could. They exercised every mean means of, of uh, work that they could do. And nothing had changed. And what they are saying is that this storm that is happening, it's got to be something more than just praying out to these gods. It's got to be something more than what we can do. And they look and they find by casting the lots, it's Jonah's fault. So they turn to him. And now notice... 
our third point, the diligence of these sailors. And in sort of a breathless chorus, these men are asking him many questions. And I trust there are more questions than we have recorded, but this gives us a flavor of the things that they're saying. One says, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? And another, what's your occupation? Another, where do you come from? And another, what's your country? And another, what people are you from? You, you can imagine that they're just surrounding him, pointing the finger and wanting to know what's going on. And here's what's so profound. In verse 9, Jonah says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the men became extremely frightened. Why were they so afraid now? Because they recognized it wasn't just an accident the lot fell on Jonah. The, The storm outside was because of the man inside this boat. They had no doubt now. But you know what was missing from the the things that uh, Jonah answered and the question that they asked? He never said what he did. He never said what his profession was. He says, I'm a Hebrew. And this is a way just to speak to the pagans to let them know he's Jewish. And he says he fears the Lord. Obviously not according to the disobedience he's walking in at this moment. He tells them that this God that he worships is the God of the heavens and the God of the dry land. So they find out that this God is more powerful than any God they've ever heard of. But notice, they never hear what he does for a living. He doesn't say to them, well, I'm a prophet of God. I told people how to obey God, does he? He never says it. Because of Jonah's sin, he could no longer properly represent God. Jonah knew the way that he should go, and he disobeyed. And now all that's left is silence about his confession of love for God. He can talk about God, but he doesn't know God right now. He knows things about Him, but he can't help these men. Look at verse 10 again. These men, they became extremely frightened, not just because they found out that the storm outside was because of the man inside, but because they found out that the God that he was disobeying was the one that could stop everything that was happening to them. This was a powerful God like they'd never heard of before. And so the men knew that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. This was Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sustainer of all things. I love the specificity of the scripture. When they came to him in verse 6, they say, perhaps you can call on your God, little g. Perhaps your God, little g, will be concerned about us. Perhaps whatever deity it is that you worship. But now when they find out that he's a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh God, the one who made the sea and the dry land, they were exceedingly afraid because they realized that's who he was fleeing from. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. And these men, these men, because of Jonah, they are there with him. And they are exceedingly afraid. But what's remarkable is despite these men being terrified, 
and probably rightly frustrated with Jonah, they demonstrate more compassion for him than he had for them to this point. They, they, they show more compassion to Jonah than Jonah had had for Nineveh. Verse 11, they say to him, What should we do to you so that the sea may be calm for us? Because the sea was becoming even more stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. If it was you, would you be ready to throw him into the sea? Not these guys. They had already taken down the sail. They're getting out the oars. And even though it's fruitless because the storm is so strong and the waves are crashing all around them and the water is over, not only overtaking the ship, but perhaps will even cause the ship to uh, be completely drowned in water, they begin to dig in to the waves and try to row against the storm. But it's fruitless. Because the sea became even more violent. Their effort was unsuccessful. And Jonah, he understands that man can't do anything. Perhaps he could have repented, but it seems that he is beyond that at this time. He's not repented yet. So God is continuing to discipline him and deal with his sin, and yet it's at the cost of these other fellows. They're being affected. So Jonah, he proposes that they throw him overboard. You have to ask, well, why do you think he did that? I I think it's because he still didn't want to see Nineveh saved. Perhaps he was showing compassion to these men on the ship because he saw them face to face and was willing to let them live. But he still wanted to disobey God. He still was looking to thwart the will of God. He was still taking it in his own hands and going the wrong direction. And so he says, throw me in. These men, they wouldn't do it. They weren't ready to do that. But what we see is that Jonah's hardness of heart brings about a profound change in these men. And this is where we see God's glory so evident in this letter or in this little book. The storm is breaking over them. The waves are billowing over them. The wind will not stop. All he had to do was repent. And you know, if he had, I, I, I believe these sailors would have been amazed because the storm would have stopped. But despite Jonah's unwillingness, God brings about a great salvation for this group of men because in verse 14, notice how they've changed in the way they speak about God. Then they called on the Lord and they said, We earnestly pray to you, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. When you read in your scriptures and you see the 
capitalized L-O-R-D. This is the covenant name of God. Before they were praying to every other God they can think of, and now because of Jonah, and they know that this God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, they cry out, Yahweh, we earnestly pray to you, Yahweh. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us, for you, Yahweh, have done as you've pleased. He's taken these prayerless pagans and made them into better believers and more faithful prayer warriors than Jonah was at this time. Don't you love the way that the tables have turned and God is now in the midst of this turmoil using the sin of Jonah to produce in these men a fear of God, a genuine saving fear of God. These men understood that Yahweh is God alone. And when they pick him up and they throw him in the sea and they see that the the sea has stopped, what does this remind us of? When Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee and his disciples were crying out to him, Lord, save us lest we perish. And he looks to the sea and he says, Shh! And it was calm like a placid lake in the morning. This ocean ceased from its storming. This is a miracle that these men had never experienced before, never seen before, never imagined, and a profound demonstration that the God that they had prayed for, for, uh, to was truly God, was truly able to stop the storm, to stop the raging, and to save them. And now verse 16, The men feared Yahweh greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. I believe that these men were saved, and one reason is that how were sacrifices made at this time? You needed an animal? They'd thrown everything overboard. What else did you need? You needed a fire. And I don't know about you, but starting a fire in a wooden ship seems like a bad idea. They went off to the dry land and kissed that sand, found an animal, and they sacrificed to God and experienced the joy of knowing Yahweh, the God of the heavens and the earth, the God of the sea and the dry land, all because of God's will and God's glory. See, Jonah was silenced. He had nothing to say, but God preached a sermon sufficient to save these men. I love that. You and I, I think, can point back in our lives to different ways that we have been helped along and perhaps even brought to salvation through people who probably aren't saved. Maybe didn't walk with Christ in the way with the maturity that we are today, or were altogether wrong. Maybe even false teachers. And yet God used that, despite the messenger, to produce in us a salvation that is undeniable. It's an amazing message. So what is a a lesson for us today to take away? If God can use a disobedient believer to such a profound means... We shouldn't think, hey, it's okay if I keep disobeying. No, that is not the lesson. 
So we see that despite Jonah's compromised witness, despite that he gave these sailors a, a pitiful amount of information, despite that he preached nothing, he had no message to give them, despite all those things, God gets all the glory. Because he used the hardness of the heart of Jonah to communicate to these sailors the power that he had over all things. And it was sufficient to save. You know, as we look through this letter over the next few weeks, I want you to be careful. Whenever we read the scripture, we have a tendency to read it quick. We need to take time and think. We need to do application in the sense that we need to think about our own hearts. See, we could look at this letter and say, Ah, Jonah, what a mess. But if we look at this rightly, I hope that you look at it and you say, Man, I am so much like Jonah. Sinclair Ferguson says this, A few sections of Scripture emphasize so clearly that God is sovereign in all evangelism, and He is evangelistic in the exercise of His sovereignty. Think about that. This passage of Scripture shows us that God is sovereign. It's His idea to go out and to save. And that God uses the means, His grace, His demonstrations of power sovereignly to also bring about evangelism and salvation in the lives of sinners. Isn't that beautiful? You know, another thing that we can take away from this is to recall to mind as I said at the beginning, this story and this uh, gospel, salvation is of the Lord, is really echoed throughout the Scripture. And when you come to Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about the just God, the justice of God and the justness of God, that God was willing to uphold His justice by dealing with sin and justness and love by bringing sinners to Himself through Jesus Christ. And we wouldn't have this reality. We wouldn't understand the depths of the wisdom and the power of God if it wasn't for the black drop cloth of sin. Your sin and mine. The sin of Adam. See, God has used sin in the life of Jonah to demonstrate to these sailors and to us the significance of His power to save despite us. And in the story altogether that we see, when God sent Jesus Christ to come to earth and to die for sinners, He set the back drop cloth of the sin of Adam and the sin of each one of us to teach us the depths of His love, the profound wisdom of God, and the impact and the effect of His sovereignty to work all things to His good purposes. And think about this. He used that which was evil, our sin, to bring about good, which is the saving of many sinners, so that we would be saints sanctified like Christ because of what Christ did. And who gets all the glory? Not you, not me. Jesus does, God does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in the Word. Thank you for the, the story of Jonah. One of the things that it's such a profound teaching that the Scripture provides for us again and again is the Scriptures are true because they're, prof- they're so filled with stupid people, 
disobedient people, foolish people, people like us. If we were writing a book about ourselves and how we got to heaven, we would probably leave a lot of these stories out. In fact, when we think about some of the other religions of the world, often when men are described, it's the men who are righteous and the gods that are foolish. But again and again, the true and faithful witness of the Scripture is that we are in profoundly desperate need for your saving grace. We are fools walking in darkness and we are prone to wander. Even after salvation, many of us can fall back into the depths of depravity again. We are willing and able to backslide and to go back into patterns of behavior that should have nothing to do with saints. God, we are so thankful that you don't leave us there. You don't forsake us, but you love us to the end with a, a love that is faithful in a way that we can't comprehend. You chastise us through the Scripture if we'll hear it. If we won't listen to that, you will send experiences, you'll send calamities, you'll send storms into our life to pry us out of evil ways and bring us back to you. And God, this morning, you, you know where each one of us are. And I, I, I believe in a room this size, it's very likely that there are people here today that either are like these sailors who think they know God, but really they just know a God. They might know the God of their parents, and they, may not, they might know the God of their relatives, but they haven't actually known you, God. I pray, Lord, that they would be cut to the heart, profoundly affected. Lord, that you'd use these supreme and sovereign uh, effects in their life, whether it be through the Word or through circumstances, to draw them to you. I pray, Lord, that they would be warned off from fleeing from your presence and instead turn and embrace a Savior who has already paid it all. But just as true, there are many here today who are walking in disobedience and very much going down that path away from the presence of the Lord, away from your clear and explicit instruction, and perhaps have not yet experienced the difficulty that attends disobedience, or perhaps even worse, seem as though nothing has changed feel as though you have forgotten them and neglected them. Lord, you know each one of us. You know our hearts far better than we can ever know our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in us through whatever sovereign means is necessary to give us every ounce of the the lesson and the discipline or the gracious uh, truth that we need to be able to say that Jesus is Lord and in Him there is no other way. Salvation alone is of the Lord. May this be our refrain. May these words be true when they come from our mouth. Amen.